Welcome to Nighttime. I'm Dave Wager, your host, and for the next half hour, hopefully we'll calmly talk about some things that are important. I'm coming to you from the studios here at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute. What a privilege it's been to be a part of these two organizations for so many years. And I'm thankful they allow us to do this podcast and send it out to anyone who wants it all over the world. It's kind of unique. If you actually listen to it, you realize that it's not meant to be full of spine-tingling thoughts. It's really just a calm discussion on what's important in life to help you unwind at the end of the day or even go to sleep. Thinking about things that you should or thinking about things that might be worth thinking about. Hopefully God uses this in your life. Since I'm talking to an empty studio, it's hard to see that. But we trust that these words will be used by God somehow in some way. I'm always encouraged by the fact that he taught with a donkey, so perhaps the words that go out on the airwaves here can be used by our king to help people draw close to him. I'm always inspired by reading biographies and thinking about other people who have got excited about who God is and shared this excitement with the world in which they lived. I'm always asking myself what they knew, what drove them to be the person that they were supposed to be. One of the people that I like reading about and hearing him talk about scripture is Charles Spurgeon. As we know, he's an old-time preacher that used to preach quite a bit. But I was reading an article by Michael Reeves, written on February 19, 2018. So that was a few years ago. And he said, 10 Things You Should Know series about Charles Spurgeon. So I thought tonight it might be fun to just read a little bit about somebody who actually knew God, what they thought about, what was important to them, and and how their ministry developed in time. Whenever I do this, I'm always thinking about what God's doing in my life and what I should be doing with the resources he's entrusted me with, whether they be Silver Birch Ranch or Nicolay Bible Institute or just sitting here in a studio talking to you. Whatever resources he's given me, what should I be doing with them to honor his name? The first thing that he talks about is that his ministry began the year of his conversion as a young man. Spurgeon was raised in a Christian home, but was converted in 1850 at 15 years old. Caught in a snowstorm, he took refuge in a small, primitive Methodist chapel in Colester, about 10 minutes, with only 12 to 15 people present. The preacher fixed his eyes on Spurgeon and spoke to him directly. Young man, you look very miserable. Then lifting his hands, he shouted, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Spurgeon later wrote, Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. The Prince of Preachers, which is what Spurgeon is called, was tricked into preaching his first sermon that same year. An older man had asked Spurgeon to go to the little village of Teversham the next evening. 
for a young man was to preach there who was not much used to the services and very likely would be glad of the company. It was only the next day that he realized the young man was himself. It's interesting that somebody saw something in Spurgeon right away and wanted to get him involved in giving away what he knew. If you listen to Nighttime, you know one of the most important things that I think in life is that we use what we have understood by giving it to other people, that we don't keep it to ourselves. Otherwise, we become intellectually or spiritually obese. When we learn something, we should put it in a way that we can give it away. We need to teach it to those we love. We need to teach it to those we work with. We need to be an example of how to live with the things that we've learned. It's important that we give away what we understand. We don't keep it because it's not meant to be kept. It's kind of like food. When I eat food, there are calories and other things that my body needs from that food and the part that's no good gets expelled and as a waste product, but the food itself needs to be used in the energy of the day. And if I eat more than I use, I get obese. And when I get obese, it's hard to get out of bed, it's hard to operate, it's hard to exist. You see, spiritual obesity or intellectual obesity can be the same. Whoever it was that got the prince of preachers to go and speak at an early age, I think was used of God to get him on the right track to do what he should be doing. The second thing this article talks about is he was a man of hard work and huge influence. He said he went on to preach in person up to 13 times per week, gathered the largest church of his day, and could make himself heard in a crowd of 23,000 people without amplification. In print, he published some 18 million words selling over 56 million copies of his sermons in nearly 40 languages in his own lifetime. Spurgeon was one who knew God and wanted to get what he knew to the people of his day. And he worked hard at it. If we are those who love God, we need to be hard workers as well. Not people who sit around and wait for somebody else to use their gifts and talents, but what am I doing with what God's given me how am I living in a way that would honor God? He's a man who worked hard, Spurgeon, and those of us that know God should be hard workers, not looking for ways to continually self-indulge our lives, but looking for ways to give away what we know and what we have. He went on to preach in person 13 times a week, it tells us. I don't know how in the world 23,000 people could hear what he said at one time without amplification. but. It says he did it. Somehow, some way, he was able to get his voice to project, or God did that. And to think that his sermons, 56 million copies in his own lifetime, that's incredible when you think about it. I'm tired just reading it. And yet, he gives us an example of what somebody can do. You might say, well, he was different than all the rest of us. Was he really? Or did he understand the urgency and the importance of doing what he did? The third observation this author recognizes is this. He was self-consciously a theological and doctrinal preacher. While Spurgeon is not known as a theologian as such, 
He was nevertheless a deeply theological thinker, and his sermons were rich in doctrine and dripping with the knowledge of historical theology, especially the Puritans. Some preachers seemed to be afraid lest their sermons should be too rich in doctrine and so injure the spiritual digestions of their hearers. The fear is superfluous. This is not a theological age, and therefore it rails at sound doctrinal teaching on the principle that ignorance despises wisdom. The glorious giants of the Puritan age fed on something better than the whipped creams and pastries which are now so much in vogue. My dad was a pastor for all of my life, and all of his life, I should say, not all of mine, because he died several years ago. But he was a pastor who taught theology and doctrine. In fact, we went through systematic theology as we sat in the pews during either a Wednesday or Sunday night services. I can't remember which one it was. Spurgeon wasn't afraid to talk doctrine. Doctrine is important to know. Truth is important to know. The fourth observation this author had was he was preeminently a theologian, a preacher of the cross. Spurgeon was cross-centered and cross-shaped theology, for the cross was the hour of Christ's glorification. John 12:23-26 tells us, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The place where Christ was and is exalted, the only message able to overturn the hearts of men and women, otherwise enslaved to sin. He would use that passage, or Isaiah 45:22 that says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved. Spurgeon loved that thought. It isn't turned to Spurgeon, it isn't turned to the church, it isn't turned to your money, it isn't turned to your family, it isn't turned to religion. It's turned to me and be saved, turned to God, who, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, comma, and there is no other. There is only one God, and that God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. One God, one way to the Father through Jesus Christ. You know, one of Spurgeon's favorite Bible verses was John twelve thirty two. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Let me read that again. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Spurgeon loved Jesus. He understood the significance of Jesus and the death of Jesus in the freedom that comes from us accepting the penalty that Jesus took on our behalf. He understood the power that God demonstrated through Jesus. Spurgeon also insisted on celebrating the Lord's Supper every Sunday and often broke bread during the week as well. He believed his preaching of the crucified Christ was 
the only reason why such great crowds were drawn to his church for so many years. He talked about Jesus dying, Jesus coming back to life. It's not a message that was hidden from the Bible, but Charles Spurgeon was able to talk about it on a regular basis and the importance of us understanding this sacrificial death that Jesus made on our behalf. Spurgeon would talk of Jesus in this way where he said, Who could resist his charms? One look of his eyes overpowers us. See with your heart those eyes when they are full of tears for perishing sinners, and you are a willing subject. One look at his blessed person, subjected to scourging and spitting for our sakes, will give us more idea of his crown rights than anything besides. Look into his pierced heart as it pours out its life flood for us, and all disputes about sovereignty are ended in our hearts. Spurgeon also taught and saw that regeneration is a work of pure grace. And those the Lord regenerates, he will indwell. Think of that amazing promise and idea that the Holy Spirit will indwell those who are in the family of God and guide and direct and defend the believer. How important it is for me to be in God's word and allow God to teach me through his Holy Spirit what I need to know. The fifth observation this author made was he aimed his ministry at preaching at new birth. Regeneration was one of the three R's, ruin, redemption, and regeneration. The three R's again that according to Spurgeon were ruin, redemption, and regeneration. Spurgeon always sought to preach, and regeneration was something he always expected to see as he preached the gospel. A friend of his once came to him depressed because for three months of ministry he had not seen a single conversion. Spurgeon slyly asked, Do you expect the Lord to save souls every time you open your mouth? Embarrassed, the man answered, Oh, no, sir. Then Spurgeon replied, That is just the reason why you have not had conversions. According to your faith, be it unto you. I'm sure he was thinking Spurgeon was going another way there. But Spurgeon was expecting to be used by God in the lives of those he talked to. Do you expect God to use your life? Do you expect him to use your words? Do you walk with God and look expectantly into the future? Or are you surprised if something happens that God does through your life? You see, we need to be those who understand that God has a plan for each one of our lives. And we get up in the morning and we look for it. For those of us that understand what Jesus said, he told us that his disciples, if I'm going to be his disciple, should pick up my cross daily. My cross. I don't have a cross, or do I? The cross of Jesus was the purpose for which he came. As Jesus tells us that we need to pick up our cross, I need to pick up my purpose daily. Tomorrow, when you get up, what is your purpose? Pick it up. Go out into the day. I happen to believe that purpose is a great remedy for all kinds of ills that are plaguing mankind. Whether they be addictions, or whether they be depression, or anger, or whatever it might be. When I get up in the morning and I know there's a plan for my day, 
and I live my day looking for that plan to work itself out, great things can happen. When I get up in the morning and I feel like an accidental blob of protoplasm, nothing happens that's good. You see, God doesn't keep me on this earth so that I just exist and breathe air and and sleep and wake up and go to it again. He's given me a great purpose in this life. And as I get up and I look for that purpose, that's a wonderful thing. Regeneration is a work of pure grace. And those the Lord regenerates, he will indwell. And with such an indweller, we need not fear, but that this poor heart of ours will yet become perfect as God is perfect. And our nature through his indwelling shall rise to complete meetness for the inheritance of the saints in the light. The sixth observation that was made is that Spurgeon knew how to enjoy life. Spurgeon loved life and saw creation as a blessing from God to be enjoyed. For tired ministers, he recommended. So Spurgeon recommended this for those who are tired and weary of ministry. A day's breathing of fresh air upon the hills, or a few hours, ramble in the beech woods, umbrageous calm, which would sweep the cobwebs out of the brain of scores of our toiling ministers who are now but half alive. A mouthful of sea air, or a stiff walk in the wind's face, would not give grace to the soul, but it would yield oxygen to the body, which is next best. Let me read that again, because it seems as though Spurgeon is giving us some secular advice, when in reality he's telling us to get out and enjoy what God has given to us. You know, one of the most important things that I do is see a sunrise in the morning. When I see a sunrise, I'm totally reminded of God's creative hand in my life. It's amazing the different colors he uses on the sunrises here in the north woods of Wisconsin. Over the trees and in the horizon, I see these colors starting to brighten. And immediately I'm drawn to my Heavenly Father and his creative ability to draw such a painting. Spurgeon said again, a day's breathing of fresh air upon hills, or a few hours ramble in the beech woods, umbrageous calm, which would sweep the cobwebs out of the brain of scores of our toiling ministers who are now but half alive. A mouthful of sea air or a stiff walk in the wind's face would not give grace to the soul, but would yield oxygen to the body, which is next best. This author goes on to say that Spurgeon couldn't resist walking outside in thunderstorms. He said this about it. He said, I like to hear my Heavenly Father's voice in the thunder. Interesting. When I was a kid, I used to listen to thunder and wonder what was going on in heaven to create it. I guess I can go into science and figure out how that happens, but I certainly enjoyed thinking that God was doing something up there. Spurgeon enjoyed the thunder so much so to go walk in it. And he had a keen interest in botany. Like all of us, Spurgeon was uniquely himself, yet his big-heartedness and joy as he walked through his father's creation displays exactly the sort of life that will always grow from the theology he believed. If you believe that God is the creator and sustainer of life, if you believe that, 
And you can find great joy in a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall here in northern Wisconsin. You can not only find great joy in that red-leafed tree, but you can know that that leaf symbolizes the fact that the sugar that has permeated that tree will be something in the spring that can be tapped out of that tree and turned into maple syrup for your pancakes. And you also realize that that's a gift from Almighty God. It's amazing how many times I look around the north woods of Wisconsin here and see God. One of my all-time favorite things to do is to go out and pick berries. And when I go out and pick berries, I'm all by myself in the woods. And I'm looking at a crop that is abundant that was given to us by God's hand. And I get to rejoice in the fact that God is my provider. He is the sustainer of life, and he has given me this gift. Those times that I spend alone out in the woods just picking berries, picking cranberries or blackberries or raspberries or blueberries, are moments where I see the very creative hand of God on my behalf. My friend, if you're tired, weary today, in ministry or just because of life, perhaps it's time to go for a walk in the woods or find a body of water and walk along the edge, skip a stone. Take time to regularly detach from all the worldly things and attach to your Heavenly Father and His creative display on your behalf. Spurgeon loved it. And even though he's in the middle of very busy times, you go for those walks and enjoy the outdoors. The seventh observation that was made is that he was a mischievous, funny man. Within the context of life, we all have personalities, and Spurgeon was mischievous and funny at times. He says, what a bubbling fountain of humor Mr. Spurgeon had, wrote his friend William Williams. I have laughed more, I verily believe, when in his company than during all the rest of my life besides. A whole chapter of Spurgeon's autobiography is entitled Pure Fun. And he regularly surprised people who expected the zealous pastor to be dour and intense. Grandiosity, religiosity, and humbug could all expect to be pricked on with his wit. An interesting guy that could be very funny at times. There are a lot of guys I know who love God and walk with God and are very serious, who also have a quick wit about them. They're fun to be with. You know, if you're around somebody who is a leader and a teacher like Spurgeon or myself or somebody else, and they're cracking jokes and doing something that is a little bit out of the character you think they are, they're feeling very at home with you. Spurgeon was one who was mischievous at times and funny. He was also serious about joy in general. Spurgeon's humor and jollity were not trivial or frivolous. For him, joy was a theological matter, and a manifestation of that happiness and cheer which is found in Christ alone. He refused to take himself or any other sinner too seriously, believing that to be alive in Christ means to fight not only the habits and acts of sin, but also sin's temporal sullenness, ingratitude, bitterness, and despair. Christ wishes his people to be happy. 
when they are perfect as he will make them in due time, they shall also be perfectly happy. As heaven is the place of pure holiness, so it is the place of unalloyed happiness. And in proportion, as we get ready for heaven, we shall have some of the joy which belongs to heaven. And it is our Savior's will that even now his joy should remain in us, and that our joy should be full. The ninth observation that he made of Spurgeon was he was a man who suffered with depression. It's interesting that he shared that he had a desire for joy and peace and going for walks walks in the wood, and he also suffered from depression. Let me read what he said. Spurgeon was full of life and joy, but also suffered deeply with depression as a result of personal tragedies, illness, and stress. Today, he would almost certainly be diagnosed as clinically depressed and treated with medication and therapy. His wife, Susanna, wrote, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. Spurgeon believed that Christian ministers should expect a special degree of suffering to be given to them as a way of forming them for Christ-like compassionate ministry. Christ himself was made like his weak and tempted brothers in order that he might help those who are tempted. In fact, Hebrews 2, verses 16 to 18 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And in the same manner, it is weak and suffering people that God has chosen to minister to the weak and suffering. We'd like to believe that ministers like Spurgeon didn't have any hard times at all to go through, but he did. Can you imagine there were times where he preached about things he knew, but he felt differently? We don't have to give in to how we feel, but we do need to focus on what we know. The tenth thing that was observed by this author was that he was emphatically Christ-centered. Spurgeon saw theology much like astronomy, as the solar system makes sense only when the sun is central. So systems of theology thoughts are coherent only when Christ is central. Every doctrine must find its place and meaning in the proper relationship to Christ. Be assured that we cannot be right in the rest unless we think of it rightly in him. Where is Christ in your theological system? How do you understand theology apart from having Christ in the center? Can't be done. Spurgeon's view of the Bible and his view of Christian life are all deeply Christ-centric. And even the astronomical analogy may be way too weak to capture quite how Christ-centered Spurgeon was in his thinking. For him, Christ is not merely one component, however pivotal, in a bigger machinery of the gospel. Christ himself is the truth we know the object and the reward of our faith and the light that illumines every part of the true theological system. He wrote, He himself is the doctor of doctrine, 
the revealer of revelation, the illuminator of light of men. He is exalted in every word of truth because he is the sum and substance. He sits above the gospel like a prince on his throne. Doctrine is most precious when we see it distilling from his lips and embodied in his person. Sermons are valuable in proportion as they speak of him and point to him. And that is the truth. There is no one that can replace Jesus Christ. He is the center of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all life. And the only reason we have any hope at all is because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. It isn't us doing what's right, it's Jesus who did what was right in coming to die for you and I so that we could be in God's family. While I was still a sinner, Jesus died for me and I can become a co-heir with him, with God for eternity as I place my trust in what he did for me. Anything that's right is Christ-centered and Spurgeon understood that. Well, I hope you've enjoyed us talking about the Prince of Preachers tonight and Charles Spurgeon and getting to know him a little bit more. I pray that your life is also Christ-centered in all that you do and say. Get to know who he is. Open the Bible, read, and apply it to your life. I'm Dave Wager here in the studios at Silver Birch Ranch. Good night for now.